Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. The other night I was in my backyard doing some yard work and I ran into my six-year-old neighbor who I hadn't seen in a while. So I asked her how she was doing. How was it going? How was school? Oh, it's fine, she said. It's just fine. Well, how about life at home? Are you figuring out anything new to do? Any new experiences now that you're home all the time? Not really, she said, turning cartwheels. Well, actually, she said... I am crying a lot. Crying a lot. I said, why are you crying a lot? Because I miss my friends. Cue another cartwheel. At which point she also kindly offered to teach me to do a cartwheel. No one likes to feel lonely. It doesn't matter how old you are. And different people experience loneliness so differently. And then there's the theory of our guest today, Dr. Ron Rollheiser. Dr. Ron Rollheiser, or Father Ron, is a prolific author and columnist, as well as a Catholic priest. He is the author of the books The Holy Longing, Domestic Monastery, and The Restless Heart, among many others. In fact, The Restless Heart won the Winifred Sanford Award in the UK in 1990 as the best book on spirituality. He has been writing books about loneliness and spiritual development since 1979. And Father Ron believes that there are different types of loneliness. Loneliness can be bad. It can be really bad. And it can be good. It can be inherited from a surrounding culture. It can arrive as a spiritual opportunity. Loneliness also changes as we age. The same kind of loneliness that you feel when you're 19 that might be good for you could be a really bad signal if you're still feeling it when you're 75. How can you tell the difference or help others discern the difference between types of loneliness as you pastor them, for example, or just practice being a good neighbor? And of course, what about when solitude or just bad company 
is someone's only option. Even when the coronavirus crisis is over, there are plenty of people in our lives and communities for whom solitude is not necessarily a choice, and family peace is not necessarily an option. Abigail Woolleycutter sits down and talks shop with Father Ron. Father Ron, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. In your publications, I've seen that loneliness is a focus of of at least two of your books, The Loneliness Factor and The Restless Heart. Can you share a bit about why you have felt, even before this season of social distancing, that this is such an an important theme to write about? Okay, Abigail, like, uh, that's a pretty easy thing to answer because, you know, I wrote The Loneliness Factor which was the first book I ever wrote. And it, it, I wrote it um, when I was 29 years old. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's more than 40 years ago. And uh, at the time, I was a restless young person. But I was also teaching that in school. Uh, I, know I, I was teaching a course on, on human restlessness and so on, um, which I designed. And it was very popular with students and so on. But it, it, it was a very personal thing. I was sorting out a lot of things in my own life and then, you know, I just redid the book, um, you know, like more than 20 years later, you know, just touched it up and so on. But the book itself is, is, is the child of my youth. That's the first thing I wrote. I, was, I wasn't 30 years old. I was a young, restless man. And, you know, I was studying on this and I thought I can, as I'm answer, giving answers to myself, I can also give some answers or some perspectives to other people as well. That makes sense. In The Restless Heart, you talk about different types of loneliness, some that we might want to avoid, some that we might want to embrace. Can you lay out those for us? I think, Abigail, a lot of people think loneliness is all of one piece. And actually, (laughs) uh, there are, to my mind, I mean, people can categorize this differently, but to my mind, there's really five very distinct types of loneliness that come from different causes, and, and also it's very important to distinguish them, they have different um, ways of being addressed. So in the book, I talk about five kinds. I'll just simplify the titles. The first one, which normally we use the word loneliness for, that's what I would call alienation. And that's the loneliness you have simply from not having enough human contact. You know, that's, that's the way most people think of loneliness. Uh, you know, and you see it in, in uh, pop culture in terms of youth songs, like who loves me, like uh, who am I, and so on. That's loneliness. Um, but then the second kind is, is restlessness. You know, restlessness isn't the same thing as loneliness. It, it's experienced as loneliness, but you can have all the intimacy in your whole life that you, you know, intimacy, and yet be very restless. You know, I'll get back to this later, but St. Augustine's famous line, which he wrote 1,700 years ago, where Augustine said, where he begins the book with this famous line, he says, you've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, we're made for God, and we're made for the infinite, and the finite uh, will always somewhat be dissatisfying. Or a, a contemporary expression of that, like Karl Rahner, Karl Rahner says, in your loneliness and the torment of insufficiency of everything, he said, 
we ultimately learn that in this life, there is no finished symphony. We just never get the finished symphony in this life. See, that's not so much whether you're with people or or not. In fact, sometimes the more religious and sensitive you are as a soul, the more you'll suffer restlessness. See, that's different than loneliness. Then I talk about something I call rootlessness, which is today, I think, is the great undiagnosed loneliness, which means, you know, I mean, a generation ago, Elvin Toffler did that when I wrote the book in, in, in Future Shock, how so many things in our life are changing, 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 and, you know, we're moving, we're moving cities, we're moving friendships and so on, that at a certain point, we're craving roots. Uh, that's rootlessness. And then I talk about um, that the fourth kind is really what clinically we call depression. It's just emotional depression. And that can come on you from the season of your life to losing a loved one in a relationship to a death to a health breakdown or just um, the blues of a Friday evening or whatever. Um, That's the emotional depression. And then actually when I wrote the book the first time, I didn't have the fifth one, which I put into the restless heart. And that is what I call moral loneliness. Um, And maybe it's the deepest one of all. And that's, um, um, I would say more deeply than people long to sleep with somebody sexually, you long to sleep with somebody morally. That's when people say, I'm looking for my soulmate. It's captured in the expression soulmate. You're looking for somebody where your souls come together, you know, Um, and see so that there are different kinds. So for instance, for alienation, uh, there you need to get out. You need to go out and and, and make friends and, and socialize. Whereas for instance, for restlessness, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes when you're really restless and you go to a party and you come back and you're more restless than before you went. Um, see, as Henry Nouwen, the great spiritual writer says, restlessness, he says, alienation has to be turned into community, but restlessness has to be turned into solitude. And with rootlessness, we have to find roots. Um, for emotional uh, depression, there's so many kinds and it's sometimes it's a passing thing, it's episodic or it's, you know, it's a broken heart or whatever, um, the the cause has to be addressed. And then for moral loneliness, that is really where there's a religious answer, you know, um, where do we find our soulmate? And that means we have to find our soulmate in in, in, uh, somebody who meets you at at your most precious, deepest, honest religious center. And see, so uh, it's important to distinguish them because uh, first of all, they're not all of a piece, but also you address them very different ways. So for instance, if you're lonely as a teenager, you need to be with people. If I'm restless as a 70 year old, I need maybe to be in a chapel or in the woods or some other place away from people. Right, that's that's really rich. And we would often use the same word loneliness for many of those different sensations or those different experiences. That's really helpful to hear you parse them out for us like that. Well, I, I, I hope that's been helpful. Oh, very much. Uh, and so some of these types of loneliness we would lean into and some we would sit with or some we would embrace. Very much so. There, there are certain kinds of loneliness that you sit with and certain kinds of loneliness you don't sit with, you know. And it's very important, for instance, with the emotional depression, oftentimes the last thing you need to do is to be alone. Whereas when you're deeply restless, sometimes as an adult, the last thing you need is to try to soothe that with some kind of activity, you know? Um, 
Now, I'll give you a, a simple example. Some years ago, I was working with one, uh, very close to one of my nephews, and he was a 20-something-year-old, and he broke up with his girlfriend. I mean, they broke up, and this just absolutely devastated him. He was just emotionally a wreck, and um, he was working at a radio station, actually. <laughs> he phoned me. He said, I'm going to go to the mountains and rent a cabin, spend some time by myself, and think this through. I said, no, that would be the dumbest thing you can do. I said, you don't need to be alone right now, you know? Um, you'll go to the mountain cabin and you'll just get a, a, a it, it'll just increase the intensity of, you know, your, your broken heart. You, you have to be with people. You have to start going back to work, work and activity are your best friend right now, you know, um, which is very different than somebody who's, uh, has a certain midlife crisis. They begin to be restless with their marriage, with so on. They need to be led into solitude. Maybe they need a week in a mountain cabin somewhere. Right. Now, at this moment, no matter what type of loneliness somebody is experiencing, solitude is really the main option. You know, you can't go out to a party or a lot of options for going out and making friends are not available. What do you do when um, your solitude is involuntary? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, there, <laughs> there's a difference between, you know, voluntarily putting ourselves into solitude. And, you know, sometimes today when you know, life is hectic, well, you know, say prior to the coronavirus, but, you know, uh, when life is normal for many people, life is hectic and, and we, we have too much going and then we, we crave solitude. Um, but we, we picture solitude the way we see it sometimes in a, in, a, in a beer commercial. You know, there's some wonderful Corona ads where they show a person, they're an executive or a young woman and they're really pressured and now they're sitting on a beach with a Corona beer, it's beautiful, and they get up and throw their cell phone into the ocean. <laughs> see, see, I'm trying to get away from it all, and solitude is peaceful. But see, that's where you're getting away from activity, and uh, and you want to get away from it. You know, it's like a, a sabbatical. It's really a Sabbath, you know. But when it's enforced on you, as it is now with many people, and also I feel, because a lot of people are going into home situations which they don't want to be in, for a long length of time, you know, um, it's one thing if you feel pressure in your work and you um, you go away for a weekend by yourself and in silence or so on. You know, it's another thing if it's forced on you and uh, and you don't want it and you're still craving activity and so on. The, the second thing is tough, and it's um, and I wish I had a magic bullet because that's what a lot of people are in right now. Um, and also, ironically, oftentimes you're home and you're with a family and there's, there's, there's no place for yourself. You don't have a private space. Sometimes it's the last thing you're going to find is solitude. You know, you're going to find noise and we get irritated with each other when we're together all the time and so on. Um, um, there that we just have to see that as an abnormal thing. And um, this is going to be a horrible thing to say. We almost like we have to endure it. There's nothing else we can do. It's, it's a bad season. It's a bad season in our lives. Do you think that for some people, there may be a way to take what feels like alienation, this imposed isolation, and redeem it by viewing it as a sort of a spiritually salutary solitude? Yes, yes. Um, but I'm not going to suggest that that's easier happens automatically. In fact, you've just, that's the solution, you know. You know, I wrote an article on, on, on the COVID-19. I said, you know, like, we're, we're all being forced to celebrate Sabbath. You know, when you read scripture, it says like, 
you were supposed to work for six days and take one day off. And it was just work for six years and take a year off, but we don't do it. And today more and more we're losing, you know, Sundays just blend into other days and so on, the Christian Sabbath and Sunday. But see, now we're, we're getting enforced Sabbath or, you know, or sometimes as Christians, you talk about going on a retreat and so on. I think it can be helpful to put ourselves under that canopy, consciously. Now, this is a retreat time in my life. This is a time, you know, I have to, I have to pull away from, from the front. This is a time for Sabbath. And Sabbath is also meant to be enjoyed. It's not just a time for prayer and uh, thinking about God or whatever. In the Jewish Sabbath, Christian Sabbath, you're supposed to eat good meals and enjoy yourself. If, if we can see it as a time of retreat, as a time of Sabbath, as a time to uh, um, pull away from the work front and just, you know, take care of ourselves for a while, we might find some solitude in this. So you're saying that if somebody is not in the throes of sort of immediate intense suffering or anxiety, they shouldn't feel bad about the opportunity to find joy in their in this experience. No, not at all. You know, I think sometimes as we're as you know, I watch the news at night. I'm sure you do too, and you see the the number of people infected and people dying. The danger is we can feel guilty about being healthy. You know, <clears throat> so suddenly you you feel guilty that you're healthy. Um, and that can't be helped. That's a sign of some moral and, and emotional sensitivity. But at the same time, give yourself permission to enjoy, you know, um, if, if you um, don't have religious scruples, have a good glass of wine each night or a glass of scotch and do things and enjoy this. This is um, it's not meant to be a fast time. This is not meant to be a time of Good Friday and Lent. Don't be afraid to do things to enjoy this, have great family meals, do things to, uh, to make the, past, the time pass with some pleasantness. Now, what about when you're with somebody else, maybe Maybe you're quarantined with a spouse or family or a roommate, or maybe even in ordinary circumstances, you are, you're around people, but you still feel lonely. I think maybe talking about that could come across as hurtful to the other person, or we might feel like we shouldn't be lonely when we have people around us. What insights do you have about that? People who might be feeling lonely, though they're not actually alone. That's a very, very good, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a very important point, and it's, I try to address it in the book. You know, that, um, that's why there's different kinds of loneliness. See, alienation, you're, you want people around you. But we can be fiercely, fiercely lonely with lots of people around us. In fact, sometimes, have you ever had this experience where you're at a party, and, and you feel your loneliness the deepest when you're with people who are celebrating? Or a great line I once heard, I had a colleague when I was still teaching in Edmonton of philosophy. And, and um, this woman, she was a philosopher, married, you know, and I'm celibate. And I'd written this article on celibacy and asked her to read it as a married woman. And she kind of laughed afterwards. She said, you know, she says, um, you celibates feel too sorry for yourself. And she said, you know what's worse than sleeping alone? She said, sleeping alone when you're not sleeping alone. That's worse than sleeping alone. She makes a very good point. Sometimes our deepest loneliness is right when we're inside with other people and, and with people that we're intimate with and we love and so on. 
I've experienced sometimes my fiercest loneliness at big gatherings, you know, because sometimes big gatherings also stimulate your restlessness. So sometimes occasions that should be beautiful, like weddings and graduations and proms, uh, and they are beautiful, but sometimes you could cut the restlessness with a knife. I mean, it's just like everybody's overstimulated and, uh, and it, uh, you, you want to fly, you want to jump off mountains and so on. Now, what's to be done about that? Again, no magic wand, but I think it can be very, very helpful for us to understand that and to give ourselves permission to feel that. Sometimes in, in our faith traditions, bless them, and in our, our just common sense traditions, sometimes we haven't been given permission, like moral, spiritual permission to, to, uh, to feel what we're feeling. And we think there's something wrong with us. So I shouldn't be feeling this. You know, if I can risk, uh, <laughs> when I was living in Edmonton, I was living with five other priests and we were directors for seminarians teaching theology. And I remember one night we went to a party. It was a beautiful party. We had actually hosted the thing at the school and we came back and here's five celibates sitting in a room. And one of them said, it was a priceless remark. He says, God, it feels horrible to be celibate tonight. <laughs> that is so insightful. You know, it doesn't change it, but you give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling. You know, you know we're, we're gonna feel this kind of restlessness and frustration and stuff at times. It's good that somebody gives us permission and just says, you know, yeah, you're going to feel that. And you're going to feel it. Now, I'm speaking as a celibate. You're going to feel it just as intensely at times inside of a marriage, you know, that uh, or inside of a family. I've always been in close families and close communities, and I'm not lonely in that sense, but it doesn't take away the feeling you're talking about. Sometimes just the restlessness. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the experience of, of celibacy uh, and how that connects to solitude I'm wondering, many of our listeners are very familiar with Roman, Roman Catholicism, but of course, in the Anglican tradition, most of our priests are married. So how do you think the conversation might be different in a context where in the Roman Catholic Church, celibacy is lifted up and is, of course, the norm for priests, monks, nuns, other religious? Do you think that Roman Catholics might have more help in thinking through loneliness because of this long tradition in which solitude is for the purpose of, of uh, prayer. Yeah. And, and, and you, you hear it, you know, Abigail, in, in some of these cultural expressions, you know, today, which speak a lot where someone says, I've heard people say, it's easier to find a lover than a soulmate. See, and a, and a lover or, or, or a spouse and stuff can do certain things to you. And they can be wonderful. Um, your soul still has other needs that can't be met by any one person or any two people or any number of people, you know? See, so the, the, there's a lot captured in, and if you study today kind of the longing in our culture for, you know, where we say, we, I, I wanna find my soulmate that speaks volumes, you know? Um, and also that it's very, very difficult to find. Well, maybe when you see that the people you have in your life don't meet all your needs, it's easier to see that your deepest needs can only be met by God. What other resources from the past do you find to draw on when it comes to redeeming loneliness? Okay, um, these are people who have spoken deeply to me. And in fact, uh, as, as a student in philosophy, that's where I first, you know, uh, uh, 
experienced this and reading some of these authors that I felt like they were introducing me to me. So while I'm like 19 years old studying philosophy, and I remember like reading the first person I'll name is St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, who lived way back, you know, 354 to 430, so 1700 years ago, um, uh, but wrote, wrote this masterpiece of a book, um, which, which is his autobiography, which basically chronicles the struggles of his own restlessness, his own sexuality, his own quest towards God, and where he coins that, that incredible expression, you've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I remember that, that just spoke volumes, you know, it's just, because I was 19, nobody had ever explained my own restlessness to me. And then I, I studied later on, I studied also Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the, in, in the 13th century, but Aquinas was a very abstract thinker, but deeply influenced by St. Augustine. But he just put a different language to it, and actually a much more abstract language than Augustine. So at one point, Aquinas says, what is the adequate object of your intellect and will? Which sounds so abstract. But basically the question is, what would you need to experience? He'd say, this is enough. That's enough love, that's enough knowledge. And he says, everything. You just need everything. You'd have to, you know, all other people and nature and God and everything. Um, and, and see, the, these people, they, they introduced me to myself. And then later on, as a graduate student, I ran into, and if, you're, if your readers or your listeners don't know about this guy, a Dutch theologian has since died, but he wrote in English called Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen, N-O-U-W-E-N. Yeah, he's pretty popular. Yeah, and he's kind of the Kierkegaard of our generation. Actually, after reading him, I read Kierkegaard. But, but I've got a book by Nowen on my bed table right now. Yeah. Well, you know, I think he just took the best of all Christian tradition, including scripture, and he set it together. And, you know, I knew Henry, and he was a very, very restless man. He was a saint, but always a saint in progress. And so he was struggling with a lot of his internal issues, you know. He was always essentially faithful, but always on the edges of a breakdown, you know. And so he used himself and his own feelings as a laboratory, and he just wrote these marvelous, uh, uh, you know, and he's the person to help me sort out that loneliness isn't restlessness, which isn't emotional depression, which isn't moral loneliness and so on. You know, he has a marvelous book. If your readers have it, he has many marvelous books, but on this topic, he has a book called, he wrote it way back in 19, I want to say 74 or something. And it's called, um, now, what is it called? Um, the name will come to me. He said there's three great movements and searches in our life. He said the movement from loneliness to solitude, um, from, from um, hostility to hospitality, and from fantasy to prayer. And um, uh, it, it's, just, it's beautiful in terms of like in, in, in the, the loneliness and, and in, in the hostility and in, in, our, in our fantasy, he just analyzes our loneliness and he shows where, where it has to go. But then his diaries and other places, he, he simply, you know, he once said this about Kierkegaard, and I say it about him. He said, Kierkegaard teaches us how to pray when we don't know how to pray. Henry Nouwen taught me. He taught me how to pray when I don't know how to pray, how, how, to, how to process my feelings when I don't know how to process my feelings. So those have been kind of the, the dominant influences in my life. And then also uh, in Roman Catholicism, we just buried a great theologian. 50 years or 30 years ago called Karl Rahner. And Karl Rahner just kind of took Augustine 
and Thomas and Scripture and ran them through a blender and, uh, uh, and coined some great lines like the ones I gave you where he says, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, you learn that here in this life, there is no finished symphony. You know, you're always going to be searching, searching for something. There's also some very, very uh, beautiful texts in Scripture. You know, one book, and you know, we read parts of this book, and we know parts of it. It's very familiar. It's, it's the book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, or the book of Koheleth. And that's the book that has that famous text that there's a season, a time to be born, a time to live, a time to grow, and so on. But that book is also where a man is just struggling with this meaning. In fact, at the end of that beautiful text where he says there's a time for war, there's a time for peace, and we stop reading too soon because then he says, God has made everything beautiful in its own time, but God has put timelessness into the human heart so the human beings out of sync with the seasons from beginning to end. And we say nature has this beautiful rhythm, spring, summer, winter, fall. Adults give birth to children and they grow up and give birth to children have this wonderful rhythm. And he said, except for this, you've never fit. From the time you were born, your heart's been out of sync with that because there's a timelessness inside of your heart that doesn't make easy comfort with time. All right. Well, um, I think that covers the, the questions that I had laid out. So uh, any final thoughts? Maybe, maybe, Abigail, let me move the story, okay? You know, when I was 18, and I went to the seminary, you know, and I was I was in a seminary with, with 22 other guys, our first year, what religious called novitiate, and we were isolated. We were sequestered, literally, uh, in a, like a lockdown. So 18 of us living together, 22 of us in, in a building, and we're all like 18, 19, 20 years old. And of course, we're, we're restless as heck, but we're studying religion. And one day, this marvelous priest came to give us a conference and he comes up and sits in our, I mean, he sits down at the desk at the, the classroom and he says, uh, you guys a little restless? He said, yeah. I said, God, he said, you should be. You must be jumping out of your skins or you must be going nuts in this place. He said, but that's good. That's good. He said, um, you can handle this. And, you know, it was so liberating for me. It didn't change anything. But I thought it's the first time somebody gave me permission to understand myself, to feel what I'm feeling. And that's what I will leave with your audience. Give yourself permission to feel this restlessness, to feel your dissatisfaction. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, it's a sign of emotional health. You know, the first sign of clinical depression is you don't feel these things anymore. You don't care. You don't care how, what you look like. You don't care who, who you're with. You know, that's depression. If you're emotionally healthy, you're going to feel this stuff and you're going to feel it deeply. Thank you. That's encouragement, I guess. <laughs> Encouragement that struggling, you know, is a good sign. You're still alive, right? Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Father Ron. I so appreciate your time and your wisdom. I, I appreciate that. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to, to speak about this very, very important topic. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host.
and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.